Romans 5. <clears throat> During this Advent season, we're looking at some types of Christ. As you may recall, this theological use of the word type is taken from the Greek word tupos. That word is used to refer to people or events in ancient times which formed an impression which foreshadowed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As an example, last time we considered how the manna that God fed his people, uh, uh, used to feed his people in the wilderness, uh, that was a, a foreshadowing of Jesus who came saying, I am the bread of life. I am the one that came from the bread that came down from heaven. But actually, when we speak of types of Christ or foreshadowings of Christ, there is only one verse in the New Testament which specifically calls someone or something a type of Christ. And that's found in Romans 5, verse 14, where we read of Adam who was a type, or the NIV translates it, a pattern of the one who was to come. And so this morning we're going to consider what Adam the first man shows us about Christ, who is sometimes called the second Adam or the last Adam because of this text. We'll start with this passage in in, uh, Romans uh, chapter 5. Let me read verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern or a type of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning I have two truths to set before you. The first one is uh, uh, basically from this text. The second one uh, starts off with this text, and then I'll show it to you in some related passages. We're not going to deal exhaustively with this text. There are a lot of things, places we could go. We just want to make this one point from from this text. That's this. Adam made us sinners. 
Jesus makes us saints. Adam made us sinners. Jesus makes us saints. You know, some things in the Bible are really easy to understand. They make perfect sense, so they're easy to believe. Other things in the Bible seemed impossible to understand, so it's hard to know exactly what we ought to believe. But there are still other things which make perfect sense, but so fly in the face of the way we think that we just can hardly believe that God meant to say that. This text is one of those passages. You see, if we are anything, especially we Americans, if we are anything, we are independent. We are rugged individualists. From the time we are toddlers, we've been saying, I'll do it myself. You heard that from your two-year-old? I'll do it myself. And so our whole lives have been about becoming self-made men or women. What we are, we are. No one else gets the credit and no one else gets the blame. I am what I am. That is until this morning. When we come up against this startling truth, Adam made us sinners. And only Jesus can make us saints. Let's start with the first half of that statement. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the first time you sinned? Do you recall when you became a sinner? While you rack your brain trying to remember, let me just tell you what our text says in answer to that. It says, no, you do not remember because you weren't even there. You became a sinner when Adam, your great, 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 grandfather disobeyed God's command, thus plunging himself and all of his descendants, including you and me, the whole human race, into sin. That's what it says in verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man, and death came to all because all sinned. Who sinned in the Garden of Eden? All of us. This text goes on to say that again and again in verse 15. The many died by the trespass of one man. Verse 16, the judgment followed one sin. Verse 18, the result of one trespass was condemnation on all men. Verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. That's the big point of this text. When Adam sinned, you sinned. This is called the imputation of Adam's sin. Adam's sin is put to your account so that it is yours. This is where the doctrine of original sin came from. This doesn't teach us that we all inherited the effects of sin, though that's true. It does not say we all picked up an inclination to sin, though that's also true. It says we all sinned. Folks, you're not sinners because you sin. You sin because you were born a sinner. 
That's what David said in the Psalms. We were conceived in sin. We go astray from the womb, speaking lies. Now, I can hear some of you saying, that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, you may not like it, but this is the way God has dealt with us. Adam was the representative head of the race that would come from him. Therefore, when he sinned, you and I sinned. We incurred his guilt right along with him. Now, you can say that's not fair, but the truth is such things are still happening today. Let me give you some examples. Let's say you're on a football team and you play your heart out and you're doing a great job. You had a performance, wonderful day. And in that last three seconds of the game, your field goal kicker missed the field goal. Who lost the game? Not just the field goal kicker. You lost the game. The whole team lost the game. It goes down in the loss category for every one of you. So you never touched the ball. Another example. As much as you love peace, as much as you may be going around saying, he's not my president, let me tell you, if we go to war as a nation, you will be at war. You could lose your life. You could lose your son's life. There's a solidarity between the individual and the nation. Another example. Consider a baby who's born a drug addict. That baby never chose to do drugs. But the mother's action made the baby an addict. You can say, it's not fair that I become a sinner because Adam sinned. Well, that's the way it is. This is an exceedingly difficult thing for our individualistic culture. But God deals with people differently than we think. There is a covenant solidarity between people throughout the scriptures. And it started with Adam, who by his one act of of disobedience made us all sinners. Aren't I just a bundle of joy this morning? I don't point this out to you to, to, to make you dismayed. Folks, this is good news that the apostle is writing to us. For remember, the truth of this point is not just that Adam made us sinners, but it goes on to say, Jesus makes us saints. Some of us think of saints as those uh, extraordinary Christians who've been canonized. In the Bible, saints means the holy ones, the people of God. Jesus made us saints. That's what we read at the end of verse 14. Adam was a pattern of the one to come, that is Jesus Christ. So what is it about the Lord Jesus that's similar to what Adam did when he plunged us into sin by his action? Well, there's a whole list of things here. That's a whole of this passage is a list of parallels between Adam and Christ. Let me go through them. Adam committed one act of disobedience. Christ committed one great act of obedience. Adam's action made many guilty. Christ's action makes many righteous. Adam's sin brought condemnation. Jesus' obedience brought 
justification. Because of Adam's sin, many died. But because of Jesus' obedience, many are given the grace of life. Because of Adam's sin, death reigned. Because of Jesus' righteous action, grace, and eternal life reign. So what obedience is Christ is Paul talking about here? What obedience of Christ? Well, there's two parts of it. This is a theological terms for it. His active obedience, that means that Jesus lived a righteous life. He did not sin. He pleased the Father. And then he has what's called his passive obedience, that he took his righteous life and he went straight to the cross and willingly suffered and died to pay for our sins. Philippians 2 says he was obedient even to death on the cross. Now, folks, this is an exciting truth. Hard as it is to accept, hard as it flies in the face of our individualism, it nonetheless brings us assurance in regard to our relationship to God. For if God can consider us guilty because of Adam's sin, even before there was any transgression on our part, if God can consider us guilty because of what Adam did, then God can consider us righteous, declare us to be righteous because of what Jesus did without any righteous contribution on our part. That's exactly what he's done. The church father, Chris system said it this way. Just as Adam became the cause of death to those who were born of him, even though they did not eat of the tree. So Christ became for the Christians the provider of righteousness, even though they have done nothing righteous. Because of Adam's sin, God declared us sinners But because of Jesus' act of righteousness, his righteous life and his death on the cross for us, God declares us righteous like his son. That's called justification. God declaring us justified, righteous, not because we've done righteousness, but because we trust in Jesus. Folks, we love to stand proudly on our records saying, I did it my way. But our only hope is to abandon our record and stand on Christ's record instead. Understanding that God in his grace puts to our account the righteousness of Jesus for all who trust him rather than ourselves. So just like Adam made us sinners, Jesus, by his life and death, makes us saints, God's holy ones. This morning I call you to abandon. Abandon your faith in yourself. And the better you are, the more righteous you think you are, the harder this is. This was impossible for Paul. He struggled with it because he had gone to great lengths to live a righteous life. And he said, I had to come to say, it's garbage. It's garbage. My only hope is Jesus. That in him I have a righteousness that I did not earn a righteousness. He earned that's given to me. 
I call you to trust in Jesus who has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that is please the Father. Oh, but Adam's foreshadowing of Christ is not just a matter of our status. There's so much more at stake, which brings us to a second point here. (laughs) And that's this. God is creating a whole new race from Jesus. God is creating a whole new race from Jesus. Do you ever think what it is that actually distinguishes Christians from everybody else? Many people assume it's a, it's a cultural difference. We grew up in a Christian culture. We have certain cultural norms, and that's what defines Christians. And other people that grow up in different cultures, they're not Christians because they don't share our cultural norms. Others see the difference as, as, as things that we believe, just as Republicans see life differently than Democrats. So Christians see life differently than, than, than those of other religions in the rest of the world. But the Bible sees a much more profound difference, one that transcends cultures, one that transcends the intellectual, our intellectual commitments. The Bible speaks of those who are united with Christ as a whole new race of people. A whole new race of people. We see a hint of that here in Romans 5. According to verse 17, the distinction between the sons of Adam and those in Christ is nothing less than death reigning versus the reign of life in Christ. But what is only hinted at here is proclaimed boldly throughout the rest of the New Testament. Let me just take you uh, bicycling through the Bible for a minute and show you. You all know John 3. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And what was the issue between Jesus and Nicodemus? It was not a difference of theological formulation. That wasn't what it was about. Jesus simply said, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Which baffled Nicodemus. How could he be born again? The issue is whether or not he has new life born into this new race that God is creating of his own people. The Apostle Peter continued that same radical distinction when he wrote in 1 Peter 1, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is it that defines us? A new birth. Based on Jesus rising from the dead. So not surprisingly in 2 Corinthians 5. After Paul explains the gospel. He makes the distinction very clear. Here's what he says. So if anyone is in Christ. He has a new set of ideas. Oh no that's not what he says. If anyone is in Christ he has new cultural norms. No that's not what he says. If anyone is in Christ he says. He is a new creation. A new creation. Again in Romans 6. It's a difference between life and death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead. We too may live a new life. As new creations. Born of the spirit of God. 
Then Paul explains in 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, how Christ Jesus has destroyed the sentence of death, which obviously we inherited from Adam's sin. And I quote, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What's the gospel producing in us? New ideas? New cultural norms? No. It's producing in us life and immortality. All these varied references seem to presuppose that God is giving new life to those he joins to Jesus and is creating a whole new race of people who inherit immortal, eternal life. Now this is the Bible kind of hints at all over the place, but no passage says this as clearly as what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a chapter on the resurrection. And let me, let me, let me read two excerpts for you. First, verses 20 to 23. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by one man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Here again, we have that distinction between Adam and Christ. Only here the difference is not that by one act of sin and one act of righteousness. Here the, the distinction is between the death that came through Adam and eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. Then we hear the same thing at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to verses 44 to 49. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, which is Christ. Make no mistake, God is creating a whole new race from Jesus. Folks, Adam's race is coming to an end. Everyone is going to die. And after that, condemnation. But God is raising up an immortal people, born anew, already part of God's new creation, even while we live in these dying bodies. And only those who are in Christ, united to him, being conformed to his image, only those will live with him forever. And you see, if that's true, which it clearly is, then the new life which we have now in Christ is all that matters. 
every other relationship, every other opinion, every other cultural norm, every other racial identity means nothing. It is passing away. It is a relic of the old life inherited in Adam. The future, nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth, belongs to Jesus and those who are joined to him. Do you know such life? It's more than being nice and going to church. If you don't know such life, you need to consider the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Seek the Lord, or Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And if you do know this new life, then hear the encouragement that the Spirit of God gives us when we read in 2 Corinthians, though our outer self, these bodies, are wasting away because we're sons of Adam. Death takes its toll on us. Our inner self is being renewed every day. The part that's born anew, the part that's joined to Christ. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. For you see, God is creating a whole new race of people in Christ Jesus. That's what he said. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people belonging to God. Every year during the Christmas season, we hear stories of someone showing up at a store and going and paying off all the um, layaways of presents that people were making payments on. What a gracious act. But folks, God has done so much more than that for us. Jesus died to pay our whole debt of sin, that we might be totally forgiven But then he put to our account, he didn't just take our sin to himself and pay for it. He took, put to our account the wealth of his righteousness that we might be acceptable to God. You see, Adam made us sinners, but Jesus makes us saints, holy ones, right with God. And then from time to time we hear moving stories of some desperate child who was rescued and adopted into a good family, virtually given a new life. But Jesus has done way more than that for us. While we were dead in our sins, destined to eternal death, he rose from the dead in order to give us new life, making us the children of God, making us members of his family, 
making us part of his body, making us citizens of heaven, part of the coming race that he's building in Jesus. That's what God's doing, creating a whole new race of people made new in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these texts speak of things that uh, we can understand the words, but they just fly in the face of our cultural norms and fly in the face of how we tend to think. We pray that you'd give us a heart to believe what you say and to see the great consequences of it, Lord. We thank you for your grace that doesn't just uh, encourage us to try harder, though we'll never be good enough, but, Lord, who substitutes your righteousness for our sin who substitutes your life for our death, that we might have uh, immortal, eternal life with you. May that be the experience of every one of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in your bulletin, we have an affirmation of faith there.